0: Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman.
1: And I'm Ira Kreisman.
0: And on this episode, we will continue our conversation on the plot, themes, and characters of Final Fantasy VI. When last we left our heroes, they were escaping from the Magitek Research Facility and from the Empire's capital city of Vector, having just found out the truth behind Magitek power and the Espers and the true nature of getting their power, which turns out you have to kill them in order to do so. And a number of these espers, when we found them basically in a a torture facility, sacrificed themselves to our heroes, the Returners, the the Warriors of Light in this particular game, to be able to use their powers against the Empire, who is obviously trying to collect them just to gain more and more power. Uh, A lot of this also was in order to try to help our friend Terra, Understand who and what she is and what's been going on with her. We kind of left her in a coma back in Zozo, and it is to Zozo where our party returns. The game just kind of makes you go there. There's no exploration allowed at this point. As soon as you escape the Empire, you rush immediately back to Terra's bedside, and one of the pieces of Magisite begins to interact with her, and she gets this sort of magical understanding of who she is, what she's about. Uh, it, it may seem strange, but this is actually her meeting her father, who is now a crystallized piece of magic. Um, but we learned that one of the espers that sacrificed himself to us, Meduin, was or is Terra's father. And this is where, having gotten a bit of the story earlier on from Ramu, before he sacrificed himself to us, Terra again through this process it's a little bit strange. We're going to talk a lot about memories in between this game and the next one because Final Fantasy and and memories are very huge themes and and interesting things that go on there. But Terra either had been told the story before, if you want to make it a little more pragmatic, or or magically is given memories that are maybe not entirely her own, but she she comes to understand her true origin story and tells it to the party, and then therefore to us, the audience, and the player.
1: Yeah, it, it's a bit peculiar because she does say, I remember it all, but there's no way she can remember this first part because the first part is, well, we get to control Meduin. We're in the Esper world. We get to control Meduin. Basically, all you do is uh, wander around this little Esper village and, and talk to folks, most of whom seem concerned. There's uh, There's ill ease in the air. We're not sure what's going on. So Meduin goes to the gate because he's the gatekeeper. That His job is to make sure the gate stays closed. There's a young man here, a young Esper, who will become important later, who also talks about, you know, things uh, are feeling kind of weird. They say something's coming through the gate. And so Meduin goes to the gate, and he finds an unconscious woman here.
0: A human woman.
1: Yeah, excuse me, a, a human woman. And, and I, I got to say, it's kind of, I, f- I feel like this whole episode is aw- awkwardly worded. I don't know if that's an issue of translation uh or if it's meant to be kind of garbled but like some of the things Maduan and this woman say to each other don't make sense or at least they don't make sense right in this context they might make sense later on like she says you know what is that thing you're wearing and he's a, and and Maduin says it's a pendant it helps protect the gate it's yours now like what why are you giving her that pendant if it if it seals the the uh, esper world off from the human world so he finds this woman She's unconscious. They return together. Like you have the option to leave her there, I guess, but I don't think the game will actually let you leave her there. <laughs> but Maduin, being a good dude, takes her back into the Esper world, and some of the Espers are okay with that, but some of the Espers are not. One of them says we are in- incompatible with humans. One of them says we better do away with it before it it tries to kill us all,
0: which is pretty gross. Yeah, you know, we, we talked earlier on about how really up until this point, the Espers are seen as pretty innocent that we haven't seen any acts of aggression on their part and it's been the humans who are very clearly the monsters but because this game is all about a bit more nuance uh, I think it's a good idea to show us that yeah there are some espers here that maybe you might understand why they would not trust humans because of their long history and and because of well what's about to come but it's a prejudice just as well that just because you know humans were one way in the past there are, uh, as you mentioned, about half of the Esper population, uh, without ever having met this girl, is angry at Meduin for bringing her into their culture or, or into their society. And it's not a great look. No. And it makes me wonder, how long do Espers live? Like,
1: did any of these Espers live through the War of the Magi? Uh, even though it was a thousand years ago, maybe, maybe that's the nature of some of these people. And so they would remember this war, they remember how they were treated and be understandably resentful. It also right. might do to take a moment here to explain, like, we've just been talking about espers like everybody knows what they are. And probably if you're listening to a Final Fantasy podcast, you do. But we've, we're usually pretty good about explaining, you know, taking a moment to explain some things. And it's worth noting that espers don't all look alike, right? Like there are some humanoid espers like Maduin, but there are some that are dragons, some that are wolf people, some that are other kinds of non-human monsters. And so I think it's really interesting that, that a race of people that is so vastly different from each other person to person can still be exclusionary or even racist against another group of people.
0: Right. And, and that's one of the things it's like, it's kind of like trying to define what a mutant is in Marvel. Sure. Right? That yeah. They can come and there are some who you wouldn't even know. And then there are some who it's very obvious that they're not human. And just like in that world, there are some mutants who take the fact that they have been otherized and like Meduin use that as an opportunity to try to make peace and try to understand why you shouldn't forward that kind of thinking and treat other people or beings, uh, if we're getting real general on our terms here that way. And then there are some mutants like Magneto and the Brotherhood who turn and say no, no one treated us right so why do we have to treat them right? We're for ours, you have to be for yours and it becomes very tribal. So because there
1: are some of the espers who really don't want Madonna there she's ready to leave. She's like, you know, I, I stumbled in here it was a mistake, I'll leave. Meduin has this line where he says something like I tried living in the human world, it's filled with desire, greed, and loathing. Which Madonna is like, uh, I mean, I guess, but that makes me feel kind of weird and creepy. And he's like, oh, but not you, because you're kind of cute, I guess. Right. But he offers to guide her back through the gate. And this is like, this whole scene is kind of truncated. We've talked before about how we might redo things if we got to do the HBO version of this story. And I think this would be a longer scene where we have a longer conversation about what it means to be a person. And can espers and humans both be people, and can we get along and all that?
0: Absolutely. This this whole section is a little bit truncated, and I think we're just supposed to understand. These things are kind of told to us very quickly. These people don't trust her. Madouin does. Like you said, even Maduin, even the way they kind of quickly fall in love here, it just sort of happens, and we're expected to accept it. And because it's a quick flashback memory, and it is a bit—it jumps around a bit because— it's a person's memory or a half person, half Esper's memory as we're about to find out. And so it's okay that it's imperfect and that it happens quickly, but I agree. I'd love to see all of this really drug out and to spend a little bit more time here in the Esper world.
1: We get an interesting scene where uh, Maduin and Madonna make it all the way to the gate. And Maduin says, if you don't want to return, you can stay here. So basically, as the gatekeeper speaking for all Esper kind, you can stay because basically he wants her to stay. He's fallen for her. It's, it, like you said, it happens a bit quick, but maybe we're meant to understand that this happens over several days. And then we get this interesting scene where they sort of float around and like they, they float up into the darkness and they sort of dance maybe. It, it reminds me a little bit of the dance scene between Draco and Maria in the opera, the way they just sort of... the, I mean, they're pixel sprites, right? So it's not real intricate but then they sort of float up and there's sparks that fly down from them and then the sparks come together and terra is born so i guess this is the version of a super nintendo sex scene
0: Uh, yeah i I think so you know with the parameters they were under the limitations they had with nintendo they could only do so much plus with super nintendo graphics i don't know how you would do any kind of love scene that I think this is about the best you can do <laughs> right. well and it and, and is again, beautiful it in tr- its way
1: it is in, yeah. its, in its simplicity it's quite nice I think
0: I agree because they abandon all sense of realism and just let it be this symbolic moment again even back to their points of dialogue like it's very quick the, they're, they're like humans and espers can't live together and Maduin's like well how do we know until we try like good line right. dude wait
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> like,
0: very good. But if, if you step back from that part of it and and don't get cynically pragmatic about it, what this is is showing that yes, two people who have this affinity for each other who do fall in love and uh, produce a child and decide that caring about each other and about this child is more important than caring about their tribalism it is incredibly powerful. So while it happens a bit quickly, and they're like. Well, let's just prove it. And, you know, within a few seconds, there's a baby. (laughs) You know, it happens very quickly. Um, But the symbolism of it and the the themes of it are are far stronger and more important than any pragmatic issues to take.
1: Right. And so the symbolism, uh, I think we can linger on here for a moment, because this makes Terra a parallel to any character throughout myth, legend, folklore and fiction who is the product of a superpowered alien and a human. Right, so this gives us, uh, paralleling just in Final Fantasy, uh, Cecil, right?
0: Right. Sephiroth.
1: Sure, Sephiroth. Uh, who else could we do? We could do Hercules, right? That's a pretty classic example. Jesus.
0: Well, Superman is born of two alien parents, but in a way, I think he fits the trope because he's raised by human parents, and right. and, and he really didn't, even as a small child know his biological parents. So he's an alien who's been raised human. I'm going to count soups.
1: I think that counts. So and and a lot of these characters, not all of them because Hercules was kind of a dick, but a lot of <laughs> these characters are seen as because they are the, are the product of two cultures, they are seen as the the hope baby trope, which we've talked about before. This is the trope that in coming together or in being born in difficult circumstances, Life continues, and and we're going to find a way to make it through. And if we can find a way to make it through as understanding each other as as one people as opposed to opposed peoples, things will be better off. And so I I really like that Tara gets to be our Jesus hope baby.
0: Yeah, literal proof that two warring cultures can coexist.
1: But then, two (laughs) years later... So, yeah, the nexus between the worlds has opened again. There was a sort of wind when Madonna came through, and and then we feel that wind again. And imperial troopers come through the cave that leads to the sealed gate, and they immediately begin kidnapping espers. And Emperor freaking Gastal is here. And he says, you know, we finally found it. Those ancient writings were correct. This place does exist. So as Meduin, you can kind of run around a little bit. Uh, eventually talk to the elder, and the elder says, okay, I can cast this spell that will create a tempest that will sweep all those nasty creatures out of our realm and seal the gate. But Madonna says, you're pretty old. Is that going to be okay? And he's like, "It, you know, basically he admits he's going to die casting this spell. And Madonna has a line that I really like, where she says, I, for one, will not miss the other side, suggesting that after two years here, the Esper world is better than the human world.
0: Yeah, that maybe Meduin was right about all the corruption and greed and power and money hungry people.
1: Can't possibly imagine a parallel to any real world politics. No. In the world right now. No,
0: couldn't couldn't do it.
1: Even so, some of the other ESPers are still they're still saying negative things about Madonna. You know, the the empire is here because she led them here even though it's been 2 years later. They go on like that for a while and then Madonna takes Terra and runs away. Now again, this seems a bit abrupt. If we were telling this story, we might do a little more build-up. Yeah. But Terra runs off. The Elder begins casting the spell. Gastal and the Imperial troopers are blown from the Esper world. But Meduin is in love with Madonna and his daughter. So he runs after them and, and tries to rescue Madonna and Terra and bring them back. But Terra is blown out of Madonna's hands and into the human world. And Madonna's not staying here without her daughter. So she lets go and goes into the human world and Meduin follows. And we get this really... Creepy's not the right word. I don't, I'm looking for a word that combines creepy and misty. Like it's it's unsettling maybe. It's a bit through the haze of memory. It feels like we're, we're peering through time in a way. and And we see... Madonna collapsed in this swamp outside the cave. And Gestal is there. And he, he puts it together pretty quickly. Because Madonna says, please take care of my baby, not realizing it's the emperor and the emperor is an awful person. And he, he puts it together. He's like, oh, you've been in the Esper world. This baby must be the product of a human and an Esper. And he takes little baby Terra and he kills Madonna Mm-hmm. And he kidnaps Meduin, and then we're behind the gate. We're still in the Esper world from our point of view, and we see the gate slowly close on this scene. And it's really, uh, for all that this whole memory scene that you know Terra can't possibly have memories of before she was born, right? For all the abruptness and some of the awkwardness, I do think this scene does a really good job of emphasizing that Terra is the, as you said, the the biological, the physical example of how different peoples can come together uh, how we can understand each other and how sometimes that can be destroyed by acts of selfish violence
0: right and and you're right it's a deeply unsettling scene because the whole time you're watching it the sealed gate is is closing in on the camera it's very cinematic and and we've taught we've used that word a lot more than most other scenes throughout the history of Final Fantasy, honestly. It, 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 the way it positions the camera. And you know you've got a limited time to watch what's going to happen here. And you know what's going to happen as he's taking the baby and murdering her mother. And kidnapping the father to experiment on. And this is going to be her life for the next 17 years. And you know what's going to follow. That she's going to be forced to burn soldiers to death and, and all of these other things. And you ho- obviously we're, we're hoping for the light at the end of the tunnel at this point. But yeah, a very, very powerful scene that shows just how difficult Tara's life has been to this point. But like you said, also gives us that symbol of hope of what she represents and why she is at the core of this game and gives us an idea of what to do next now that we know that she is this thing we're going to try to figure out a way to broker some kind of peace between the espers and the human world so that we can stop the empire we're actually going what we're going to try to do is get the espers on our side so that we can force out the empire so that becomes the plan terra is now our diplomat to the esper world
1: right one of the things i really like about this one more thing i want to say before we uh Move on with the the storyline bit is I love how, in understanding herself, Tara is able to achieve a kind of balance. She's here in Zozo unconscious because when she uh, when her power awoke, as it were, she lost control and went screaming into the sky. But understanding where she comes from helps her to to achieve a balance between her human side and her esper side. like i I love this kind of a trope, like in the first Avengers movie. When Bruce Banner turns to the Avengers and says, that's my secret, I'm always angry, I loved that. Because understanding that anger is a part of us helps us to regulate that anger, to balance that anger. Uh, and then, this might actually be slightly spoilery, but in Avengers Endgame, so if you haven't seen that, get, you know, skip ahead a little bit, but Bruce Banner as the Hulk, Professor Hulk, as it were, is fantastic. Finding that balance, ach- achieving an understanding of who you are and why you are and, and how to be yourself, I think is one of my favorite things in stories.
0: And, and I think one of the things that you're getting at here too, is that not only that, but a lot of times in stories that's finding where you belong is how that problem is solved. But the Hulk and Terra don't really belong. That's in, in a traditional sense. They are uh, again, to use the Superman example the only one of their kind. Right. And that doesn't mean that you don't belong to a family or a group, but that means that you have to decide for yourself. And really, we all do. It's just that much more powerful, I think, when you can't just fall into, well, I'm like these people. Here are my people. I'm a conservative, or I'm a liberal, or I'm a I'm a punk, or I'm a rock person, or I'm a country, you know? And it's just like you define yourself by those things, and it can become easier, but when you're this, you you can't just do that. You have to find your own real true self and you can't just fall back on, oh, I'm like these other people. You have to be only who you are and then hope and expect that people will respect you and, and accept you for being that. And that's why it's so powerful when Terra makes this turn, not just because now she can morph and battle and be a, a an Esper whenever she wants and she gets all kinds of new, cool, fun, magical superpowers.
1: Right, right, right. Our characters are a little worried about what's been happening in Narsh, and, and so we should head back that way. And Now we have the airship, uh, so we can go wherever we want. It's worth perhaps going to a few other places. For example, in Sen, you can buy the Seraphim Magisite for 3,000 gil. In Jador, you can go to the auction house and buy some Magisite. Anything else you try to buy, like the the son of the rich man will say, I want that, I want that, and his daddy will buy it for him. You can also go to Thamasa, but there's no real point at this point. There'll be a point here in a bit.
0: The only thing about that is you can technically, I've, I've gone on about character introductions before they're technically introduced to the story, and you oh, can sure. go and find Strago, who just says, and who might you be? And then that, that's all you can get at that point. But there he is. You can go and meet uh, a main party member, quite a bit before he becomes a member of the main party
1: yeah make your way to narsh the the guards there are not ready to attack you immediately instead they've been waiting for you and they say this way please and i know i said a few episodes ago i think this is the last time we see bannon and arvis i was wrong we see them a few more times (laughs) so bannon explains that the people of narsh have finally decided to fight the empire which is which is great. They're no longer neutral. Uh, we're going to fight fascism. Excellent. We explain what happened uh, in Vector and the nature of espers and magicite and learning magic. And Arvis says that the plan now is going to be to combine Narsha's money, which suggests that as a mining town, there's a lot of money to be made in, in fuel sources.
0: Yeah, there's a Switzerland parallel going on here, by the way. Speaking of being neutral and having all of the money when it comes to fascism, there's a Swiss bank, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Yep, and so we're going to combine the money with Figaro's machinery and technology, but we don't have enough manpower. And Bannon says we have to open the sealed gate because we can't beat the empire without the espers. And I just got to ask, why in the hell does Bannon think that the espers are going to help the returners? Like, do they think we're politically aligned with them? Do the espers also hate fascism?
0: Right. Like, one, why does he think they're going to help us? And two, this is always a super weapon problem, right? Anytime, someone oh, oh, well, if we get the super weapon, we'll use it the right way. And and that's part of the problem with, for example, nuclear weapons, when people say, oh, well, those countries shouldn't be allowed to have them, but we should have as many as possible because, you know, there's a... there's an issue there. I could see, like I could see this
1: being a longer conversation where he says, look, I think the espers should be on our side because we're fighting for the freedom of everybody, including their friends who were tortured for the past, what, 20 years or so.
0: Yeah, I think you can make a strong argument. And I do think that the the writing and the way the story is done, when Tara gets on board, that kind of makes it make the most sense. And, And she seems pretty... Apt to to want to do this, probably one to to learn more about the espers. But I do think that she understands at this point that the threat won't stop with them. The fascism won't stop with the subjugation of the human world. That's never been what this is about. They're coming for the power, and that's where the power resides. So she may even want to warn them. And and so while they're putting all this pressure on her, remember before when they did the whole you are Pandora, you are our only hope. And she was like, I don't know about all that. Now they're saying you have to broker a peace, between, at least between us and the espers, the, the returners. Right. She's pretty quickly on board.
1: Yeah, she, she even has that line, my existence is proof that a bond between humans and espers can exist. I'm the only one who can do this. Uh, and she takes, takes that chosen one burden pretty seriously. Yeah. Now, before we go back to, uh, before we go to the Sealed Gate... It's worth wandering around Narsha a bit, and you can find your way to a storage room, and you can stumble upon uh, one of these werewolf characters that we saw in the dungeon of Figaro for being a pickpocket. It is Lone Wolf! I don't know if it's the same Lone Wolf as from Final Fantasy V. Probably not. But the only other werewolf-type characters we see in Final Fantasy VI are Espers, so I don't know if he's meant to be an Esper also, or if he's just like the only wolf man in this world.
0: Yeah, another thing that goes pretty unexplained, but doesn't really need to be. Yeah, it, it
1: doesn't matter that much. But he steals a thing, and we wanted that thing, so we chase him into the mines of Figaro. <laughs> You've got shiny thing. Yeah, you, you took that shiny thing. I want the shiny thing. You can briefly see a yeti in a cave, in the caves up here in the mines. Uh, he won't become important until later. But Lone Wolf runs all the way up to the top of the mountains where uh, Tritoch or Volagamarda still is, and we approach. But he has taken a Mughal captive, and we like the Mughals. The Mughals helped us out, so uh, we we back off because we don't want him to like slit this Mughal's throat. I guess I'm not right. quite sure what the plan is here, but the Mughal, known as Mog, is not one to just you know stand there and be be a hostage, and he begins to struggle. Uh, and he struggles so hard that he throws himself off one side of the cliff and he throws Lone Wolf off the other. And we now have a choice to make. Do we go and help Lone Wolf and take the gold hairpin or do we save Mog? What do you think,
0: Drew? Definitely save Mog. <laughs> <laughs> the shiny thing is is nice and that that that's fun. But yeah, this was a new kind of thing introduced in six. It would happen again in seven then they'd stop doing a little bit, I I think, for good reason. I don't know. You can go back and forth on whether or not optional characters or being able to miss out, because you might not know that the right answer is to to not go after the item because you won't get Mog in your party until much, much later in the game if you do that. Uh, But, yeah, a fun little thing where if you don't make the right choice, it, it does change the the nature of your party for a little while, but if you do go and talk to Mog, all of a sudden, he talks back. Yeah, he says, thank Koopo
1: The human-loving, fast-talking, street-smart slam-dancing
0: Moogle. <laughs> uh, fantastic. And and then he does, because and most Moogles throughout all of Final Fantasy only speak in, you know, variations of the word Kupo. But he speaks perfect English.
1: <laughs> right, right. Maybe slightly accented because he says Kupo every now and then.
0: Right, right. He's, he's still got that aspect of it. And I'm not entirely sure how... Mog's voice is supposed to sound I've had completely polar opposite interpretations of it in my head over the years mm-hmm. most Moogles sound very high-pitched how are you today, Cooper? You know, and, and, and it goes on in, in futures no matter how much English they do or don't speak, there's usually that kind of thing, but there are one or two who are outside of that and I feel like Mog would probably have more of like an American, New York, street style accent sure, and I can see that a little bit of yeah, Dino the, from
1: Final Fantasy XV.
0: Right, right. And it's just kind of some of the, the things he says. Uh, but I could also imagine him being the narrator of this game. We've talked a lot about the opera nature, and there are lots of times where the game pauses, and there's narration from who or from what. We, it's never really made clear. And if we were doing, again, our HBO adaptation of this, I would be very tempted to have whoever is voicing Mog also be the narrator.
1: Francis McDormand, just like in Good Omens.
0: Oh my God, it's perfect. You just, (laughs) oh, now if that doesn't happen, I'm going to be, now when that doesn't happen, I'm going to be very disappointed. (laughs) Francis McDormand as the voice of God and as the voice of Mog. (laughs) So
1: uh, Mog does say
0: something interesting
1: here. He says, that old psycho Ramu came to me in a dream, and now I'm going to join your party. And I think the implications here are pretty wild. We talked before about how uh, Moogles, you know, they knew Terra was in trouble and they came to help, and that sort of implies this psychic connection they have with with the planet, perhaps. We paralleled that to the psychic connection the Moogles have with Cryley in Final Fantasy V and how they seem to be sort of the keepers of nature in their little corner of the world. And so I wonder if it would, it would seem to me that Espers and Moogles have had this connection before and that Ramu chose Mog to help sort of guide our characters. On the other hand, Mog does not have a whole lot of story implications, and I wonder, like I think we could tell this story without Mog.
0: Probably. I th- yeah. I th-
1: yeah, so if if you and I were doing this story again, we might find ways to make Mog more integral. Like I Well, let me put it this way. Is Mog an interesting character?
0: I think so, because I'm definitely in the camp that you can have zero impact on the plot and even the themes and still be an interesting character. I think Mog probably fits a little more into that category, but I also think that it's kind of like you were saying he's this potential window into more you don't have to think too hard about Mog, and you probably won't miss it. But if you if you do think about Mog and his connection to other games and his connection to Ramu and his connection to Magic and how long do Moogles live and how much does he know and, and could there be more there, I think there's a lot you could dig into. So th- that's always nice, too, when there's something in a story that maybe it's a huge deal. Maybe it's not. Like, there are theories, uh, not to jump too far forward into spoilers if you know the name or don't, that, but that... Uh, Daryl is gogo, right, right right, and those theories have pretty much been dismissed by Square Enix, but I, I still think that stuff like that is interesting because we don't those are two characters with a lot of mystery surrounding them, and so it allows people to have these theories or write fan fiction uh, telling the entire story of how Daryl became GoGo, even if that's not real inside the text you can't fully disregard it. And I think that's the same thing with like Mog and his connection to Ramu. And you you could easily tell a version of this story where Mog's the most important character who's been kind of manipulating events the entire time so that our heroes have a chance. So the next thing to do is to go to the
1: sealed gates and try to broker some sort of peace with the espers. You can do other things. You've got access to the airship. You can go wherever you want. It is worth taking Mog around to the various biomes and getting his different landscape-inspired dances, like the caves and the forest and the desert and so on. The next storyline thing to do is to go to the Sealed Gate. So there is an Imperial base constructed before the entrance to the Sealed Gate. And we go in thinking, okay, we're going to have to fight through this military base, but there's nobody there. Like, what's going on? There's, there's a, a little fortress here and you can go inside this building and there's a locked door downstairs which becomes important uh here in a bit but there's nobody
0: here so a little too quiet
1: yeah exactly hey
0: look it's (laughs) raf a little too raf jeez thank you nerd (laughs) thanks for setting that one up for me i was i thought the same thing oh god i hope people I, i hope there's at least one person listening who got that I'm leaving it in
1: <laughs> we go into the cave the cave to the sealed gate and it plays that same music that it plays when terra meets tritoch and i love this piece it is worth noting that this is a cave uh, where the floor is lava or at least parts of the floor are lava and it does make me wonder how did madonna get through here like if this is the way to the sealed <laughs> gate how did she, did she just stumble through this cave where there's exposed lava all over the place and get to the gate? Or maybe it wasn't like this 20 years ago. I don't know.
0: That's been my guess, is that it wasn't like that back then. That somehow this is also a natural defense that the Empire has tried to create. Because if there's anything they don't want anyone else to know, it's the location of the sealed gate. Sure. Or maybe it's
1: the other way. Maybe that spell, the Elder Cast, not only oh. created a storm, but created a, a cave filled with lava.
0: I like that. In our retelling, that's how it goes.
1: You know, it's just a big, big dungeon. It, you know, it's difficult, but it's not terribly uh, confusing or anything. This is where you can get uh, the Genji Glove if you didn't get it by refusing Bannon's uh, request. Yeah. There is one thing I want to mention, or two other things I want to mention. Uh, there is a ninja who you can fight here who, uh, when you defeat him, says, Oh, man, I thought I had the Monopoly on all the stuff buried in the plaza beneath the Grand Stairway. What does that mean?
0: I, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that'll come up again later. Uh and then you can also find the Atma weapon, which is uh the lightsaber that is as powerful as you are as you have ma- uh hit points, I think. Right. So, Atma weapon, ultimate weapon, we're going to talk more about that when we talk about the monster, right? Yeah. So, you get through the cave and we get to the sealed gate. The sealed gate is it literally uh, a big metal door set into this this sort of lonely mountain peak that's thrust up through this, uh, this ethereal storm. There's these clouds and lightning, and we're not outside, we're underground. So how is there a storm? And there seems to be a sky. And this yeah. is very, uh, you know, Ghostbusters. Like, where do these stairs go? They go up.
0: They go up, uh, yeah. Uh, it's and, just and, floating in <laughs> ambiguous space.
1: Yeah, which, which suggests some sort of ether between realms, perhaps. So Terra approaches the gate. She's going to try to communicate with her mental connection to other espers and and tell the espers on the other side that, one, we uh, are here in peace, and two, we need your help. We'll get into the politics and and the potential war later. Uh, But I I really, I think you're right. I think that Tara's goal doesn't have anything to do with Bannon's resistance, really. It has more to do with achieving, achieving peace, not necessarily an invading vector. Right. And then we hear Kefka's laugh.
0: Oh, this is one of the more unsettling ones, too, because it comes from off screen and you may not be expecting it. But right at the moment when you're trying to do the the peaceful thing, he shows up and uh, drops a pretty big bombshell on you that this had been the plan from the beginning that they'd been trying to reopen the sealed gate since that day, all those years ago, when Terra first came through and have been unable to do so. And that this is the reason why the very first mission of the game was actually on purpose to let Terra fall into the hands of the Returners, knowing that the Returners would also want the powerful weapon to win the war, that they would lead them right to the sealed gate and open it for them, which is exactly what the heroes do.
1: I do wonder how much we can trust Kefka on that, though. I mean... Sure. It's pretty convoluted.
0: It is, and there's a lot of things that that had to go well, or go right, in order for that to happen, so... And we know he's always trying to manipulate our heroes, and that he's overly lied about how much of a spy Salas ever really was, and and all of that, but... Still, it seems likely that they thought, at some point, this did become the plan. Right. Terra will lead us right to them.
1: Yeah, that's why there are no soldiers guarding the sealed gate, right? Exactly. I I get that. Yeah, I think that's... But to suggest that this was the plan all along, maybe. But, I don't know. He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a scumbag. He'd probably say anything. Exactly. So we have to hold off Kefka while Terra talks to the espers. You know, after fighting Kefka for a bit, the door does eventually open... She sort of does her transformy thing and, and calls to the espers. And the espers immediately leap through the gate, and they are on a freaking rampage, and it's got that, that intense music that plays when intense things happen in Final Fantasy VI. Yeah. And they are pissed, and they roar through the place. And after all these espers come through, the gate closes again, and these rocks fall in front of it, and I guess to, to further seal the gate.
0: Yeah, but, you know, upon immediately realizing that their friends who were kidnapped 17 years ago are almost all dead and they were all tortured to death and that these people are now coming back, presumably for more, uh, the espers weren't really ready to hear whatever message of peace Terra had and instead make a beeline straight for the capital of Vector and absolutely obliterate it.
1: They do. They wrecked that place. Uh, our guys fly after them in the Blackjack and the Espers then attack our airship and we crash land on the continent and have to walk to Vector. And I, yeah, I, I have sympathy for the Espers in this.
0: Yeah, I do too. And it's one of those hard parts of, of wars and, and whatnot because, yeah, I, I, can, I totally understand why they would react that way. But it is, to use the word again, Remarkably unsettling. And we were just in Vector going, F these people, man. The Empire is horrible. Look at these terrible things they're doing underneath the Capitol building and their Magitech research facility. But when you arrive and everything's on fire and most of the people are dead, right? it's, it's striking the power. There, there are definitely some Game of Thrones parallels. I think most people who've wanted to see it have seen it at this point, but the burning of king's landing you know you may not be happy uh about who's in power there but and we don't get the scope of it i think in the super nintendo another reason why i'd really love to see this remade because vector is a giant city and presumably right. thousands of people would have died in this attack maybe tens of thousands of people would have died in this attack and so while Yes, we're ultimately, I still think, more on the Esper's side. The amount of destruction is eye-popping. Right. I mean,
1: yeah, like you're saying, presumably, you know, the baker died uh, in, in this attack. You know, the baker down the street, you know, the neighbors, the, the people who just live there because that's where they were born. Gestal wasn't killed in this attack. Kafka wasn't killed in this attack. attack. Right. Sid wasn't killed in this attack. You know, right. none of the higher ups that we know of were, did you know, they didn't get the revenge on the people responsible for what happened. So, yeah, it's pretty, pretty disconcerting. When we get here, Arvis and Bannon are already here because remember, uh, Narsh and the Returners were going to invade. Uh, so you see Returners and Narsh soldiers uh, running around. They are, you know, they said, we didn't do this. This, it was like this when we got here. And so we can make our way up to the sort of palace, that metal building. Uh, and we're met by one of the imperial soldiers who says the emperor's expecting you. Okay, great. All right. And the emperor says, when you finally get up to the throne, he says, "I've lost my will to fight." Well, whoop de frickin' do! Like, <laughs> yeah,
0: funny how that happens once you start losing, huh?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, the war's off. Oh, that's only because you're getting your ass kicked by these super powerful magical beings. Okay. Yep. But Sid comes out and he says the emperor's had a change of heart, and I'm thinking, man, you're getting played by this dude again. Are you serious? Like, were you guys friends as kids? Why do you believe anything this man says ever? Right. Because I want to like Sid. You know, I like this Sid. I really do for for a few reasons, and we've talked about that. But, like, he's getting played a lot.
0: Right. Well, and I, I'd love to get deeper into their history, too. Again, maybe they were friends, or maybe it's, he sees him as more of a father figure, and he treated him really well. We're going to jump. Like, the story now is going to become a lot more about Kefka's insane power. And we need to draw a distinction between that and Gastal's power. Like, Gestal wants power in the way a lot of people in the real world want power. Yes, he's going to do horrible things with it, but he wants to rule over the world full of people who he can tell what to do. Right. Uh, to use another Game of Thrones example, there's a lot of talk of, like, if you're going to use scorch-earth tactics, you're going to, as they say in Game of Thrones all the time, so what, are you going to rule over the ashes? Yeah. Gestal has no interest in ruling over the ashes and i think that's part of why someone like sid and people like leo might follow him they accept that really terrible sort of corporate capitalist fascism which is it's ultimately for the greater good so it's okay because once we win the war everyone will get will just be a member of the empire everyone will be treated right and it'll be okay after that point where kefka as we're about to learn very clearly has no problem with ruling over the ashes. Like, right. That's fine by him.
1: Yeah, because he could not care one way or the other about anybody else, and he just right. doesn't understand why anybody would build anything or make a connection to anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right, so Gestalt uh, explains that he didn't realize the Espers had this much power. I call bullshit because he's been in the Esper world. He says, They'll shred the world. We must get them to understand we're no longer at war, which again... You don't get to decide the wars off just because you're getting your ass kicked now. Right. This is like when, like in the, those 80s movies when the hero finally fights back against the bully and the bully starts crying and, and makes it seem like we were picking right. on him all along. Like, no, right. you're the bully.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: Sid says no human's going to make the espers sit down and listen. But Terra could do it. And so they're kind of putting all the pressure on Terra again. But Terra really uh, takes to it this time. She's like, yes, I'm going to be the one who can do this. And then the emperor does this weird Nero thing where he says, okay, but for now, we feast. Like, your city is still burning.
0: Yeah. Literally on hell? fire. And we're going to sit here at this nice table and yeah. have a dinner. And and, they, <laughs> and he's like, well, I threw Kafka in jail yeah. he, because of the poisoning of Doma. Like, you didn't throw him in jail immediately after the poisoning of Doma. (laughs) Right,
1: exactly. So the emperor, before we're going to have our feast while his city burns, uh, wants us to go and talk to as many of his soldiers as we can, because not everybody in his employ is ready for peace. And I kind of dig that. I kind of like this idea that we're going to go around and try to convince people, you know, the war is over, or at least the war between the Returners and the Empire is over. We need to refocus now and get the Esper's to understand we don't want to hurt them. We're at least going to try to work together now, even if we don't like each other. Like I, I, I dig that. I like the idea that diplomacy is part of the solution. Yeah, at the same I, time,
0: it's also <laughs> super messed up, right? To, to force us to go around and try to convince people of a piece that we probably, at least as the player, don't believe in, and then the characters are clearly skeptical as well. Right, but. But they want peace. That's part of the problem, right? They, they want the killing to stop, and so they're willing to try something, and, and if this is the way to do it. So you have to go around and talk to as many soldiers as you can, and it's also this really interesting storytelling mechanic because you know, some of the soldiers just aren't for it, and they will literally fight you, and you have to go into battle and, and fight them. Some others will say, yeah, okay, some others and I, this is I think the most interesting part of it seem to express true guilt about their own role in being mm-hmm. a soldier for the empire disgust at what Kefka did in Doma and one guy there, there was one line in particular that stuck out to me there's a soldier who says I've slain so many people I can never live a normal life now right and that's, that's a real PTSD thing that this Super Nintendo game and doesn't dive into it. You right. know, that, that's pretty much all that's said. But to understand that from the point of view, not of somebody on the, quote, good guy side, but someone working for the Empire who this piece may have come, but if he was there when Celeste led the attack on Miranda and killed a bunch of people there, or maybe he was there in Doma. And mm-hmm. he has to live with the consequences of, of all of those people who were poisoned to death right along with his general who ordered the attack. It's horrible what this stuff does, and it's not just the people who make the decisions at the top. The the ones who have to carry out the orders have to live with it for the rest of their lives. So after we
1: have this little mini-game of running around and talking to soldiers, you have four minutes, and the more soldiers you can talk to, the more points you get, which is going to be relevant to the prize you get at the end, which is more of a gameplay thing than a a storyline thing, but I think it's worth mentioning. After that, there is a banquet. And there's a there's a basically it's a diplomatic discussion between the emperor and the returners. And it's worth noting that Sid takes a seat on the Returners' side, which is great, you know, good for him. But there's no Bannon or Arvis sitting on our side of the table. I I kind of would like to see those guys take a role in this.
0: Yeah, just from I think a that's also a good point hint of view. that. Yeah,
1: and and I think that's as much to do with how many how much space there is on the screen as anything Probably. else. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we sort of run through all the things that are said and all the options that you can... Like, we don't have to go in depth on every single one. But uh, there, there are a variety of prompts, and then you, as the player, get to choose what your response is. So, for example, we start with a toast. To what shall we toast? You could toast to the Empire, to the Returners, or to our hometowns. And each one has a different score. So if you say, uh, if we toast to the Returners, if you make the Emperor swallow his pride and toast to the Returners, you get one point. If you toast to the Empire, you get two points. If you toast to our hometowns, then you get five points, right? So there's this sort of, if you walk the diplomatic tightrope, you get more points. And the more points you get, the better prize you get at the end. So it's, there is a gameplay reason to do it. Uh, the Emperor asks, what should we do with Kefka? Uh, you have the option to pardon him, execute him, or leave him in jail. Leave him in, in jail is the, the high point answer, which I think is appropriate. I am, you know, if I can get in my personal opinions i'm in general against killing people i'm I'm against the death penalty but for that matter i'm also against like incarcerating people so but for a guy like kefka keeping him away from where he can do harm i think is probably the best choice yeah the emperor apologizes for the poisoning of doma the correct response here is that was inexcusable you can either uh, demand he apologize again or say what's done is done what's done is done is a real weak answer Asks about General Celeste. The best answer here is Celeste is one of us, with an exclamation point, which I really like. Uh, You know, after everything we had been through with her, she is one of us. She's a returner. You can ask questions. You can ask, uh, you know, why did you start the war? Anytime you repeat a question, you get minus points. But you can ask each question once. He wants to talk about the espers, but you can interrupt him. So, you know, why did you start the war? He admits his desire for power. Why do you want peace now? You know, we need each other's help. This is really like this is like a non-answer answer. It's like, yeah. oh, it, that's the I'm getting my ass kicked, so now I want help answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can ask, it. you know, why did we talk to your men? We basically already talked about this, but it was to try to convince, you know, get those who don't understand to see you, to you know, to talk to a person face-to-face, to see the face of the enemy, and maybe they might uh, understand, which I can appreciate. But at the same time, like, this is your job. You started this fire. It's your job to put <laughs> it out, Emperor Gestalt. So finally we get to, you know, what are we going to do about the, you know, the, the espers are going crazy. What are we going to do? There are two options here. One of them is, but you unleash their power. And the other is, yes, the espers have gone too far. Excuse me, have gone too far. And saying the espers have gone too far is the five-point answer. That's the correct answer, which strikes me as a little odd. I mean, they have, right? Certainly innocents were killed, as we mentioned but after everything that was done to them and done to their people to suddenly blame the victim for lashing out is i'm not sure i'm i'm not sure i feel about that yeah
0: and i i guess what i would say is i don't think that that's necessarily meant to be the morally correct answer so much as it's supposed to be the diplomatically correct answer if your goal here is to convince the emperor that you are buying what he's selling even if you're not, then the right answer here, if, if I'm thinking of this literally just politically, if I'm sitting down at this table and asks this question, even though I might not believe it, I would probably say, yes, the espers have clearly gone too far because I'm telling him what he wants to hear. Sure. And really,
1: they have. And they have. But, a bit,
0: but I'm with you. Like, <laughs> you shouldn't take away from this that that's the truth of the matter or the only truth of the matter. Right
1: so we can take a rest here which is the right you know you get five more points for that you can fight some of the Imperial commanders sitting on Emperor Gastal's side to show them your strength which you know because they're Imperial soldiers they they respect a show of strength let's see there are a couple more questions here is there anything you want to hear me say uh, we want to hear that the war is truly over which he will uh, which he will agree to to emphasize and then he says I need a favor from you and this is where I'm like, oh, come on. Are you serious? Here it comes. <laughs> Here, okay. After all this, now we need to do something for you. And the favor is, we, we think we know where the Espers are. They have, they have headed to Crescent Island, a little to the north and east. And I need to borrow Terra's power. And to that, I would like to say, Emperor Gestalt, please go f*** yourself. Are you kidding me? You... You want to borrow, you kidnapped this girl, you raised her in captivity for 17 years, you made her into a weapon. I know Kefka's the one who put the slave crown on her head, but surely that was done with the go-ahead from Emperor Gestal, and now you want to borrow her power? No. What? What? But the correct answer is to say, yes, we will help, we will go to Crescent Island. But that is just so gross to me.
0: It's, well, yeah, and it's, it's brutal, but I think that's how you're supposed to feel about it. I think you're supposed to feel gross. It's the, you've got no other option but to, after this man has done all these terrible things, you just have to try to go along with it.
1: But one of the things that makes it a bit easier is that General Leo is going to be heading this mission. So General Leo comes into the room. He thanks you for being committed to this piece. He recognizes Cyan, if you have Cyan in your party. And he apologizes profusely. You know, I tr- I did my best to not have that happen. And science says, it wasn't your fault. You're a man of honor, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Gastal does a thing where he says something about, uh, we must find the esp- espers and come to terms with them. You are our last hope, he says to Terra, which parallels Bannon, which feels a little bit creepy, but we've also critiqued Bannon for yeah. being kind of weird about Terra also.
0: Yeah. I mean, everyone's trying to use her for their own ends.
1: Right. And so seeing her go go along with it because she thinks it's the right thing to do, I really appreciate because it shows her coming into herself after not having her memories uh, or emotions to herself, you know, having them stolen away by the slave crown, by her, you know, her conditioning and her and the way she was raised, seeing her do it because with her own agency, because it's the thing she thinks is right. I really appreciate
0: Right. She didn't go to the sealed gate for Bannon and she's not going to the Crescent Island for Gastal. She's doing this because she believes it's the right thing to do.
1: Right. Locke and Tara are going to go to Crescent Island. Locke says to the rest, the rest of you stay here and investigate. I smell a rat, Uh, which is like, (laughs) no kidding. If you do well in talking to all the soldiers and in the banquet you get a reward for your performance. Uh troops are withdrawn from South Figaro and Doma. You can take the stuff from the locked room uh at the east gate and throughout the imperial palace you can get a tin uh bar, bar, which like uh, I think gives you I think heals you as you walk and a charm bangle which reduces the number of uh random attacks. So that's fun.
0: Yeah, and also All of the music in the occupied towns goes from being... That's right. You you talked about that under martial law song back to being kids running through the city corner.
1: Right, right, right. So, yeah, music change if you perform well. There is a neat little scene before you head to... So you're going to head to Albrook to get on the ship to go to Crescent Island. But before you do that, if you go to the airship, you can see Sid helping Setzer to fix the airship. Though Setzer doesn't want Sid's help. And Setzer will have this little... uh, He'll do a... A little scene where he explains about uh, you know I wanted to be the fastest airship pilot in the world but there was this girl who had a ship called the Falcon and she was faster and sometimes we hated each other and sometimes we loved each other and then there was the day she uh, went away and I missed Daryl and it's a really sweet little scene that you only get if you make your way back to the airship
0: yeah that's it for this episode Thanks to everyone for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we've missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. We are also now on Patreon. While the podcast is still free to listen to via archive.org or on Patreon if you want, you can download it to a regular podcast service and do so for as little as $1 a month. Join us next time when we meet an eclectic granddaughter-grandfather duo, learn about the history of magic, and board the floating continent.